tend to like glorify ourselves and act like this what we've created here is somehow different or better than what has pr- existed prior and here it's just it's more of the same so any white person marrying a quote negro mulatto or indian man or woman is banished forever that's the first time that white is used in the law of this country to refer to a group of people the church was the one that was actually facilitating the practice of slavery i mean what would jesus do it's not sell children we just see the further codification of white supremacy in the colony welcome to the revolution and ideology channel i am jared i'm nick and uh, this is our series, uh, our third full episode of Myth is America, as we kind of go in linear fashion through U.S. history and deconstruct the prevailing celebratory narrative of uh, of the current nation state. So um, rather than uh, a long intro today, we're just going to jump right in and pick up where we left off. I'm going to do a brief summary, and then uh, and then Nick's going to kind of lead the charge by giving us a, a full uh, rundown of Bacon's Rebellion and what it means uh, going forward, uh, especially in regards to race. But real quickly, where we left off in the last episode is it, the last episode was on like the Virginia Company and the establishment of exploitative labor uh, and ethnic cleansing. So ethnic cleansing in terms of the indigenous peoples and then labor exploitation in, in terms of a system of uh, basically indentured servitude. The reason those are the two things that we emphasized was kind of kind of to set up Nick so that he can uh, give us some depth on why Bacon's Rebellion is so important. And I left with this kind of like, or I left uh, off last episode with this thought that the Bacon's Rebellion is is more than just like an example of uh, of dissatisfied, more or less uh, class stratification in 1676 is when it kind of breaks out but it is also emblematic of not just the way uh moving forward that the british colonists and eventually the united states of america that kind of stems from it would deal with class issues but more or less how it also leads to certain constructs where class will also be attached to other things foremost of which we're going to talk about today uh is race and it'll also give us a good segue today's episode will give us a good segue into later episodes of course where we deconstruct the establishment of uh of slavery outright slavery of uh of African-Americans. So that's kind of what we're doing today. The other thing that uh, I want to remind our listeners of that we left off regarding last episode was the fact that Bacon's Rebellion will also be kind of a watershed moment in that moving forward, again, whether we're talking about the British colonists or uh, their descendants, the Americans, they will, when dealing with internal issues of inequity, seek to, from this point forward, always uh, externalize those and blame outsiders. For Bacon's Rebellion, we'll kind of follow up towards the end of the episode, but for Bacon's Rebellion, it is the indigenous population that will eventually feel uh, basically the the ramifications of Bacon's Rebellion. Again, Bacon will, will, will launch this rebellion challenging two major prevailing uh, institutions or peoples that he thought were problematic regarding these recent freed indentured servants or immigrants as to why they weren't getting their land or getting what they were promised when they came over from England. Um, and the first, of course, would be the elite planting class in the Virginia House of Burgesses, so the elite white tobacco farmers. And then the second would be the indigenous people who are sitting on the land, and the anger will be oriented at both those institutions. So moving forward, the main thing that uh, that 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 uh, society here, whether again, we're talking about the British colonies or eventually the United States, main thing that the lesson we learn here is that they will always choose, quote unquote, to externalize those uh, issues. And rather than blame the Virginia House of Burgesses and the elite planter class that had been running the show at that point for the better part of five decades, uh, when 
trying to channel anger of subservient classes, they will channel it outward at, again, indigenous peoples or immigrants or communists or you name it. And so that's one of the themes. But without further ado, um, I know Nick is very passionate about this topic, so I want to uh, pass the mic over to him. So it's kind of interesting because we have talked a lot about how this episode is about Bacon's Rebellion, but honestly, Bacon's Rebellion is just like a blip on the timeline of what we're going to be discussing today. I'm not even going to go into like what were, what went down really in Bacon's Rebellion or the historical context leading up to it. That's not my goal here. My goal is really to talk about the ramifications that it has because those are so wide-reaching still to this day in our country. Um, that's really what we're going to focus on. So just keep that in mind. So I want to lay the groundwork. Um, I highly suggest if you haven't listened to our previous episode that you do that because Jared gives us a lot about the what Virginia looks like at the time and the Virginia company, uh, etc. Um, by the way, just I want to say briefly before I get started, most of my notes on this episode come from a book titled The Invention of the White Race. It's by Theodore W. Allen. Uh, it's two volumes about this era in American history uh, and how the racial divide basically in the country was created. Uh, it's incredible and fascinating. I highly suggest you read it, though it is uh, lengthy. Like I said, it's two volumes. Um, and that's really what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to touch on Bacon's Rebellion, but what we're really going to be talking about is uh, how whiteness and this concept of white skin uh, being associated with good, essentially white supremacy uh, in the early colonies uh, was established and how that um, continued to this day. So like Jared told us in the last episode, um, in the Virginia colony, there were basically sort of three, two classes of people. There were the elite Christian Europeans, and these were the colonists that owned the plantations that were significant property owners, etc. And then we had the labor class, and that consisted of the indigenous peoples of the area, um, freemen that were both European and African, and indentured servants, both European and African. Now, in the very beginning, like 1607, when the Virginia colony was uh, settled, there weren't actually very many uh, free Europeans uh, that weren't elite and there was almost no free Africans, uh, nor were there slaves in the colony. But that's sort of our starting off point that there were two main classes, the elite Christian Europeans and the labor. And I'm intentionally using the word elite Christian Europeans because we have to understand that using white and the color of someone's skin was not a way of categorizing people in early Virginia. That wasn't a thing. That was something that was uh, invented, and that's what we're going to lead up to today. But it's very important to point out that in the founding of the Virginia Company uh, and the Virginia Colony in 1607, there were no actual slaves. That means, what I mean when I say that is, there were no people that were enslaved for life. Um, actual chattel slavery was not a thing in England uh, at the time, and thus it wasn't a thing in Virginia uh, either. As Jared told us about in the last episode, the Virginia Company got its charter in England and then went across and established the colony. So the laws in both areas in the beginning were uh, very much the same. We're actually going to be following the trajectory of the laws made in Virginia and see how those change and become to codify and institutionalize some of these differences. But in the very beginning, they essentially had the same laws as they had in England, and slavery was not a thing. Religion was the most distinct division uh, between people. People were either Christian or not, and you had to be a Christian to own land, to vote, etc., and this status was used as a means of 
social control. Of course, in the beginning, only the Europeans were Christian. That's important to note. I don't think that's news for anyone knowing that religion was a tool of social control or that it was a division uh, used to control people that had been going on for uh, thousands of years. So that's nothing surprising there. Um, interesting, though, our jumping off point here, the charter was defined in a way where all free men, both blacks and whites, had the right to vote. Now, I say that, but we have to understand at this point in the history of the colony, there's no probably free blacks at this point yet. But everyone that was free had the right to vote. Of course, not women. Uh, women, we'll get to that much later on. But if you were free, you had a right to vote. That's very important for us to make note of right this second, because that will change um, uh, quickly once we start moving along here. We also have to paint a picture at this time of... Like Jared told us in the last episode, the vast majority of everyone there are indentured servants. So they're not slaves for life, but they are working to work off debt. Um, and both blacks and whites alike are indentured servants. However, unlike what we think of when we think of traditional slave society, which doesn't exist yet at this time, we'll get to there in a few minutes, both Africans and European indentured servants commingled with one another. So they were working together on the plantation. They were working together in the homes of the elite plantation owners. They basically were completely integrated. They hung out together. They worked together all day. They had parties together. They ate together. They had celebrations, etc. Um, so fully integrated the African and European indentured servants. That's important for us to focus on because that's going to be a problem uh, coming up shortly. As the number of free black Christian men increased, so as the Africans that were getting brought over that were indentured servants that were working off their servitude and becoming free, this posed a problem because if they accepted Christianity as the laws were constructed, they could own land, they could vote, etc. So this results in a threat to the European Christian elite. Um, so now we get into our first statute passed in the uh, Virginia colony government. So this is in 1638. This is the first time they take legal action to start dealing with this increasing threat. And then we'll see this progress over time. So they say, quote, this is 1638 Act 10. All persons except Negroes to be provided with arms and ammunition or be fined at the pleasure of the governor and council, end quote. So their first action here is to say that uh, any African should not be provided with arms or ammunition. It was customary at the time that anyone coming into the colony would be provided with a weapon and ammunition for that weapon to basically protect against the indigenous is what they were uh, attempting to do at this point. That was really the only external threat that would have needed protection, at least in their eyes. So they, 1638, they draw the first line in the sand and say, everyone should be armed except for any Africans. So that's step one. Then we fast forward two years, and in 1640, slavery now becomes quote-unquote legalized. And we'll go through the example, and you'll see why I need sort of air quotes around the term legalized. In 1640, four men, three European and one African, who were servants, um, they run away from their servitude. Their master, the plantation owner, Hugh Gwynn, um, 
he was also a member of the House of Burgesses, recaptures them, returns them to Virginia, and then they go in front of Virginia's Council of Governors to determine what their punishment is going to be. Um, this is a quote from the minutes of the court, and I'm going to read this so we can see the impact that this has. So this is 1640 again. This is a crucial moment in the history of the United States of America. This is what the court has to say. Whereas Hugh Gwynne hath by order from this board brought back from Maryland three servants of foreignly runaway, sorry, there's three of them, two European, one African. Uh, from the said Gwynne, the court doth therefore order that the said three servants shall receive the punishment of whipping and have 30, 30 stripes apiece. So all of them get the equal sentence for how many whippings they get. One called Victor a Dutchman, the other a Scotchman called James Gregory, shall first serve out their times with their master according to their indentures, and one whole year apiece after the time of their servitude is expired by their said indentures in recompense of this loss sustained by their absence. And after that service to their said master is expired to serve the colony for three whole years apiece. Okay, so the two um, European servants that escape they get another four years served. So they get one year to their master and three years uh, to the colony itself that they have to serve after the other uh, servitude that they have since. And that the third, being a Negro named John Punch, shall serve his said master for his assigns for the time of his natural life or elsewhere. I'll read that again. And that the third, being a Negro named John Punch, shall serve his said master or his assigns for the time of his natural life here or elsewhere. Now, this does two things. It highlights the difference between the treatment of European and African servants, um, but historians also point to this sentence as the first legal record of a lifetime of slavery being imposed upon an African. In this case, his name, John Punch. So this establishes the legal precedent for a lifetime of slavery um, in the colonies. Now I'm going to leave slavery there because Jared's going to come back in the next episode and talk about the transatlantic slave trade, etc. But just know that the first time ever that this was done uh, in the colonies was in 1640. Now that's a lot we've gone over already, so I'm going to pause and see if Jared has any response to any of this yet. Uh, I mean, I guess just just the usual. I think, like I said, what we when we overlook this time period, um, we overlook, of course, the establishment of the way things are uh, not just, of course, immediately in Virginia, but like the ramifications for like long term regarding, of course, in this case, uh, uh, the establishment of perpetual servitude for the African uh, that was caught from running away. And like I said, we're going to get to treatment of indigenous peoples here in just a minute. But I mean, like I said, this is a this is kind of like a watershed moment that that where Virginia just this 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 small colony. I, I'm looking at it right now on some data online here. Approximately forty thousand is is the population just before Bacon's Rebellion, and you're actually thirty years before the rebellion anyway. But regardless, I mean, this it's not huge, and yet it is setting like a very clear outline, almost like a template or a trajectory um, for the problematic ways that we're going to try and do things for the next 250 years. So, I mean, it's it's important that we really dig into this stuff. I mean, that's all I have, have to add. I mean, I think I guess this is just another example of what I brought up in the last episode of like the the favorite penalty, of course, uh, if you broke any laws as an indentured servant, whether at that time it was male, female, black, white, whatever. Favorite, of course, punishment was just adding years to your term because again this is exploitation they are seeking to make money and free labor is the best way to make money so yeah i mean we can also see 
numerous examples today of how we have kind of modified but still use this general trajectory of like servitude for forced labor and then of course that profiting an elite class so like it's it's setting the template so yeah all right as we continue through these laws i just want to point out i hope that this angers all of you that are our listeners because as i was doing this research it made me angry so i hope that some of you feel that anger so we can share in our disgust of the colonists of the time um, 1662, so we're fast-forwarding a little bit. Now they passed some laws to discourage procreation among the servants. So uh, it says, according to the 1662 laws of Virginia, if servants are caught fornicating, this is the term they use in the law, with one another, their master must pay 500 pounds of tobacco to the parish, which is the church, and six months is added to the servant's term of servitude. If the master refused to pay the fine, the servant was whipped. You can imagine that I, there is not a single master, I'm sure, that would pay that fine. They would chose to have their servants whipped instead of giving up 500 pounds of tobacco. If a child is born to a female servant, she must serve an additional two years or pay 2,000 pounds of tobacco to her master in addition to the fine for the initial fornication. So if you were a female servant and you had a child, you had to either do an additional two years of servitude or pay 2,000 pounds of tobacco. Clearly, no servant would ever have 2,000 pounds of tobacco. So essentially, you got two years tacked on to your term. So I asked Jared, why were they discouraging procreation among the servants so much? Uh, well, I mean, it was another mouth to feed and those children are not going to be, uh, useful in, for, in terms of labor for however many years. I don't want to necessarily make assumptions, but at least a decade. So yes, it's just another mouth to feed and it's cutting into the profits. It's also important to note, especially, and that's why the, 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 the sentence is harsher on women is that that takes a woman's attention away from, in this case, not just her work in the household, but primarily the children that she's caring for that are not hers, the master's children. It takes attention and time away from them. Um, so I think all of those kind of mix into this very like toxic situation here. Yeah. Okay. Then later on, um, also in 1662, but later on in the laws of the Virginia colony, we get a new one. And this one is incredibly important for the trajectory that we're going to go on regarding slavery. Um, during this time, economic conditions actually were improving in England. Prior to this, there was a huge flow of indentured servants coming from England, mainly London, over to the colonies, and they were willing to take on that debt of indentured servitude to seek a better life for themselves. At least that was the story that was being told to them, um, because conditions in London at the time were actually not very favorable. But as things to begin to improve, all of a sudden, we start seeing a shortage of indentured servants coming from Europe to the colonies. So in 1662, they take action to try to remedy this problem. Um, I'm going to read this. this is Act 7 of the 1662 uh, Assembly. Whereas some doubts have arisen whether children got by any Englishman upon a Negro woman should be slave or free, be it therefore enacted and declared by this present Grand Assembly that all children born in this country shall be held bond or free only according to the condition of the mother. And that if any Christian shall commit fornication with a Negro man or woman, he or she so offending shall pay double the fines imposed by the former act. So there's two things in here. The second one, which is not as crucial for the trajectory of our country, but it's that if any Christian um, woman, essentially, has a child by a Negro man or woman, uh, he or she must be uh, pay double the fines. But the first part is what's key. This establishes legal precedent that the child's status follows the line of the mother. So if the mother is a slave or is a servant, then the child 
also becomes a servant. Prior to this, any child born was free. This is a key, key legal change. Why is this so impactful? Well, because again, when we look at it this way, this is, it, it, it it's going to basically set the table for one of the the motivations of engaging in the transatlantic slave trade and and I guess I must stress this, and we'll dig more into it when we talk about the transatlantic slave trade. Most of the slaves that end up in in what would become the United States don't even come directly across from Africa. They come through the Caribbean. Um, so oftentimes I'll, I'll hear in class like, oh, they'll look at like some sort of map. And, oh, the United States didn't take that many people directly from Africa. But it none of those maps show that the amount of slaves that actually came from the Caribbean uh, from or from other traders. Um, but regardless, back to the topic – what this means then is there will be motivation to basically self-create labor, like to self-perpetuate labor rather than even having to continuous, continue to go to whether it is the Caribbean or in rare cases all the way across the Atlantic to Africa. At this point now, what they're doing is they're setting, again, through precedent, that's one of the things that we use in both English and American law later on, through precedent, they're setting this precedent that you can now basically make your own labor. You can, you can create your own forced servitude. And this will be capitalized on, and that word is being used intentionally here, uh, for the next, basically, for the next 200 years uh, in both the English colonies and then, of course, when they achieve their independence in, in, the, in the United States, especially, of course, in, in the southern United States. I mean, obviously, this means that any child born to an enslaved African woman would also serve a lifetime of servitude. Uh, so this is where this comes in 1662 uh, in Virginia. I also, the language here of this act is key. And we're building up to when this starts to change. But they, when referring to Europeans, they use the word either Englishman or Christian. And that's how they define themselves. So they're using their European ancestry or their religion uh, as the social uh, delineation here. So keep that in mind. It's English, either Englishman or Christian. They're either European or Christian. Uh, and so we have Englishmen. Christian and Negro. Those are basically the categories as laid out in this act in 1662. So keep that in mind. Okay, now we fast forward another, let's see, 14 years and we get to Bacon's Rebellion. Like I said, I'm not going to focus a ton here on the actual rebellion because the actual rebellion isn't impactful. It's what comes afterwards as a result that is what's uh, super impactful. Um, Nathaniel Bacon was an elite colonist. In fact, I think he was a member of the House of Burgesses. We have to well, he, he ran. Like, at, at first he wasn't, and then the governor, Berkeley, mm -hmm. uh, was, you know, basically said, hey, why don't you run? He runs, and, and he gets a seat. And that, that's wildly yeah. problematic for Berkeley. And then, of course, they disagree in the House, and then eventually, um, that's where, uh, that's where, of course, the rebellion will start, is in this dis disagreement. Basically, Berkeley calls him a traitor, right? Yeah. To the English cause, to the Virginia cause, and, and that's where this rebellion breaks out. But Bacon's main issue, like I said, uh, in, in the intro to this episode, is yes, he's, he's challenging Berkeley and the other elite in the, in the House, but, their, his biggest issue is on what he's challenging them on is not only are they not like following through on the promises of, of for free indentured servants and the rest of the immigrants that are coming over, but that they are not taking seriously his requests uh, to change their Indian policy. That, and that's what he called it at the time. And that was the idea was he wanted them to continue it to uh, expand at the expense of indigenous people, which means war. And one of the things that I, I don't I think sometimes also gets lost in this time period is that if you were already a wealthy tobacco farmer, and I get it, the ideology of more is a, a whatever, a colonial and an American tradition, like maybe I'm never satisfied enough, but at some point your plantation is profitable enough to where maybe they, these individuals did reach a point where they did a cost benefit analysis and 
is it worth my time, energy to wage war against indigenous people so that these recently freed indentured servants or these immigrants can have land or should I save my resources and continue to profit? And and many of them at a certain point, right around the 1670s, decided maybe it's time to take a break from fighting indigenous peoples because it's costing me a lot in terms of both like resources and manpower. And 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 the indentured servants or again, recently freed indentured servants or poor free yeoman farmers, they can handle things on their own. I'm not going to go to war. I'm not willing now to fight and put my ass on the line so that these basically these poor white people can have have what I have. I'm not interested in doing that anymore. So that's one of the things that Bacon get and, and Berkeley and the other elites are having issues with. 100%. And like Jared explained to us in the last episode, when you served out your servitude, you were given land. I think it was, I can't remember the amount. I think it was like 50 acres. However, the land only existed out on the quote-unquote frontier. And we all know that there were already people there. The indigenous peoples already lived there. So if you were recently served out your time and you wanted to go stake claim to your land, you had to go and remove the people that were already there to establish your land. So the newly freed indentured servants are out on the frontier taking part in this battle constantly. And just like Jared said, one of Bacon's issues is he actually is critical of Berkeley because Berkeley at this time has started to refuse to lend aid to the uh, free colonists out on the frontier that are fighting against the indigenous peoples. Bacon Bacon wants him to come down harder and to provide weapons, etc., and supports for the people out on the frontier that are fighting the indigenous peoples in the name of expansion. Bacon, in in no, no stretch of the imagination in this episode, is going to come off as some sort of hero. I mean, the man was asking for more ethnic cleansing campaigns Mm. against the the First Nations, the true people of this continent. And, and so, regardless of what he's doing for class conflict, he is, he was an awful human being, and that must be asserted, like right now. So we don't, we don't accidentally make him into like some sort of celebrated figure fighting for the underclass. No, he is, his solution is ethnic cleansing. Um, and the reason he's so pissed off with the Virginia House is that they're not helping him in his campaign the way he thinks they should. Yeah. So he decides to take action, and that's where the rebellion happens. However, it's important for us to understand that at the beginning of the rebellion, the target are the indigenous out on the frontier. So he rounds up a group of people, and these are armed. There's hundreds of them, about 400 is the closest estimate. And it's both free and indentured Europeans and Africans all together. So just an example of how intertwined the lives of these people were. It didn't matter whether you were free or indentured or whether you were European or African. All of those people took part in Bacon's Rebellion. So they got together, they armed themselves, and their first target was to go out and attack the indigenous on the frontier. Though very, very quickly, they then turn their efforts and they go and target Virginia Governor William Berkeley uh, himself and Jamestown itself. And they actually drive Berkeley out of town and they burn the capital in Jamestown to the ground. So just recap that for a second. So they all arm themselves. They're free, indentured Europeans and Africans with Nathaniel Bacon. They go out and attack some indigenous and they quickly just turn, go into Jamestown, drive out Berkeley, and then burn the capital down. Um, and they actually, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, here's a firsthand account uh, at the time from the eloquently titled A True Narrative of the Rise, Progress, and Cessation of the Late Rebellion in Virginia, most humbly and impartially reported by His Majesty's Commissioners appointed to inquire into the affairs of the said colony. Yes, that is the title of this source. It's a hell of a title. Anyway, um, 
what we see here is uh, at about daybreak next morning, six of Vegas soldiers ran up to the palisades of the town and fired briskly upon the guard, retreating safely without any damage at first. Um, and then the governor gave command that not a gun should be fired against Bacon or his party upon pain of death, pretending to be loath to spill blood and much more to be a beginner of it, supposing the rebels would hardly be so audacious as to fire a gun against them, but that Bacon would rather have sent uh, sent to him and sought his reconciliation so that some way or other might have been found out for the preventing of a war, to which the governor is said to have shown some inclination upon the account of the service. Bacon had performed, as he heard, against the Indian enemy, and that he brought several Indian prisoners along with him, and especially for that, there were several ignorant people which were deluded and drawn into Bacon's party and thought of no other design than the Indian war only, and so knew not what they did. The reason I like that little passage there is it shows how he's trying to maybe attempt to have this, like, two, two, uh, basically two-front rebellion, like fighting on two different fronts. But the appeal of fighting Native Americans was not just, of course, to try and seize land, but it actually made him somewhat of a quote-unquote hero among uh, the people that were following him, and it actually garnered him more, more and more followers. The fact that he is like parading these Native American prisoners of war that he's brought around, it makes him look like he's the one that's fighting for for the desires of the, uh, of the underclass. So, yeah. Now... Throughout this process, they actually hold Jamestown for a couple of months. Bacon himself dies of dysentery, which is funny because it always reminds me of the Oregon Trail every time that I see this. Like, they should have one episode of the Oregon Trail where you're trying to have a rebellion, but then you die of dysentery because that's what happened to Bacon. He dies. Other people take over leadership. Uh, eventually, they get defeated with the aid of British troops, actually, uh, in Jamestown. And that's basically the rebellion. It's much more intricate than that. And we can talk about like the battles, et cetera, but that's boring and not the topic of this podcast. So that's essentially what happened. A few hundred of these servants and free men joined together. They attacked the indigenous led by Nathaniel Bacon. Then they attacked Jamestown. They drive the governor out. They burn it down. Bacon dies of dysentery. And then uh, they eventually get defeated a couple of months later. However, the historical ramifications of this are massive because if you look at this from the perspective of an elite colonist at the time, this is terrifying to you. Why is this so scary? Uh, I mean, it's the first time that you are, well, you've been clearly outnumbered by those beneath you, but the, this is one of the first times, not the first time, one of the first times that agency of the underlings actually reveals itself to be a threat. Like your various conditioning processes that you've used, and, and this comes from our other course ideologies and isms, like the storytelling, the narratives, using Christianity, using uh, uh, pride in being an Englishman, all the things that we tell ourselves um, sometimes don't work. And basically to condition or socialize people into willingly giving themselves up to subservience, sometimes they don't work, and then that's when rebellions break out is when they stop working because the material circumstances have become so bad that they feel like they have no choice. So, I mean, the, and, and at this point, yes, the planter, the planters is what I call them or the elite. They finally realize that, that some things are going to have to change. They're going to have to clearly do both material changes and ideological ones. Um, and they're going to use legislation and of course, socializing campaigns as well to make sure that this doesn't happen again. So let's talk about a few of those uh, legal changes, and we're going to see this start to snowball very quickly uh, after Bacon's Rebellion. So this is in 1680, so just four years after the rebellion. This is Act 10 of the General Assembly. The title is, An Act for Preventing Negroes' Insurrections. Uh, this is, quote, 
Whereas the frequent meetings of considerable number of Negro slaves under pretense of feasts and burials is feasts and burials is judged of dangerous consequence, for prevention whereof for the future be it enacted by the king's most excellent majesty by and within the consent of the general assembly, and it is hereby, hereby enacted by the authority aforesaid that from and after the publication of this law it shall not be lawful for any negro or other slave to carry or arm himself with any club, staff, gun, sword, or any other weapon of defense or offense, nor go or depart from his master's ground without a certificate from his master, mistress, or overseer, and such permission not to be granted upon particular and necessary occasions. And every Negro or slave so offending, not having a certificate as aforesaid, shall be sent to the next constable who is hereby enjoyed and required to give said Negro 20 lashes on his bare back, well laid on, and so sent home to his said master, mistress, or overseer. So now, before where... Um, Africans were just not being armed. They could still carry arms if they got them somewhere else. Right after the rebellion, just shortly after, they say now it's even illegal for any Negro or other slave to carry or arm himself, period. And it's not just guns, right? They even are very specific here. Club staff, gun sword, or any other weapon of defense or offense. Now, keep in mind, this isn't just for slaves rising up against the elite, also, there are now free African indentured servants that are out on the frontier trying to secure themselves land, which now has been made completely impossible. Uh, they can't fight against the indigenous peoples if they aren't allowed to arm themselves. So this now economically also places them at a disadvantage. Um, so this is very, very uh, important. But that's not the end of the act. There's more. Quote. And it is further enacted by the authority aforesaid that if any Negro or other slave shall presume to lift up his hand in opposition against any Christian, shall for every such offense upon due proof made thereof by oath of the party before a magistrate have and receive 30 lashes on his bare back well laid on. So any Negro or other slave lifts his hand against a Christian, they get 30 lashes. Not even if they are just a servant or slave, even if they are free. Now, keep in mind, we're still using the word Christian here as the social category. Um, so we're talking about Negroes and Christians. These are the two categories. Um, do you have any thoughts on that before I go? This isn't even the end of that one act. There's still more, but. I mean, not too many. I mean, it's, it's, it feels, and I, I freely admit, even as a historian, when I don't have necessarily the research on a certain topic, uh, and this might be one of them, but, but it reminds me a little bit of some of the policies within the encomienda system, um, of under Spanish colonial rule. And I am curious if, if there was any influence or maybe why some of this becomes even maybe stricter than what was, uh, in the encomienda system based on English observation of some of maybe the, uh, hiccups or hangups within the encomienda system, like if they were observing what was going on in the Spanish colonies, and of course, over time, they make these uh, amendments uh, or these acts to these policies based on what they're observing. Um, and I'm not, I'm not trying to insinuate in the encomienda system, as we talked about in like the very first episode when we did Columbus, didn't suck like wildly, but. Um, but the English definitely moving forward will do things differently. And a lot of it has to do with their different colonial visions. I think some of it has to do a little bit with their difference in what type of Christianity they practiced regarding Catholicism versus uh, the various Protestant confessions. I think there's actually uh, some important things for us to pick apart there, which we probably will in future episodes. 
But, uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that's where my mind immediately went is, is, is immediate, is, is not immediately, but over time, maybe through their own experience and through observation of other colonial powers, France, of course, in the north and what the Jesuits were doing up there. Maybe they decided that it was time to maybe bring the hammer down a little bit more so, uh, based on, again, personal experience and what they may have or have not been witnessing in these other colonial projects. For sure. All right. Like I said, that wasn't even the end of that act. There's more. And it is hereby further enacted by the authority aforesaid that if any Negro or other slave shall absent himself from his master's service and lie hid and lurking in obscure places, committing injuries to the inhabitants and shall resist any person or persons that shall by and lawful authority be employed to apprehend and take the said Negro, that then in case of such resistance, it shall be lawful for such a person or persons to kill the said Negro or slave so lying out and resisting, and that this law be once every six months published at the respective county courts and parish churches within this colony. Now, if any slave resists capture, it becomes lawful to kill them. Also, I must stress that throughout the history of the laws of the colony of Virginia, it stated that any time a slave is killed, even if they're being captured, etc., the colony itself reimburses the owner for that slave. So this is public money. So the public pays that owner for that slave's uh, life if they are killed uh, during this action, which is super interesting. So that was all in one act in 1680. So like Jared just said, they're dropping the hammer here legally. But that's not enough. Two years later in 1680. I mean, right there, like, I'm just going to jump in for a second. Like, right there, like, a country that has a rich tradition in placing a numerical value to human life, right there, I mean, we can see that's just one of, uh, well, we'll probably come up with numerous examples throughout the, the, this series. But yeah, like, that's right there off the top of my head, right? We still see it today, like you are a credit score or when you're talking to an insurance company for health insurance, like you are a number, right? And this is where we see like a very rich tradition of that. Again, probably not invented here. I could take this all the way back, honestly, to like Hammurabi's code in Babylon. But again, we we tend to like glorify ourselves and act like this, what we've created here is somehow different or better than what has existed prior. And here it's just, it's more of the same. It is more of the same. Different language, more of the same. So then two years later in 1682, that wasn't good enough, the act in 1680. So the title of the act in 1682 is an additional act for the better preventing of insurrections by Negroes. So they needed more. Um, Here they require the act to be read in church service twice per year, and any minister failing to do so is to be fined 600 pounds of tobacco, one half going to whoever ratted them out, and one half to the poor of the parish. So now they're requiring the uh, before-mentioned act of 1680 to be read twice a year so everyone hears it. Um, Then specifically in Act 3, quote, No master or overseer knowingly permit or suffer without leave or license of their master or overseer any Negro or slave not properly belonging to him or them to remain or be upon his or their plantation above the space of four hours at any one time. Essentially, no plantation owner was allowed to have any slave that wasn't his on his plantation for more than four hours. The fine here was 200 pounds of tobacco. Very clearly, they're trying to prevent the congregation of slaves um, so they cannot organize. Uh, I mean, uh, there's no way to get around it. Thoughts on that? No, I mean, we could keep moving. Like, I I think I'm going to let you need to get through a couple more of these before, like, we, we really drive home this point. Like, why a rebellion led by poor indentured servants that were white, 
quote unquote European Christian. And then the reaction, at least internally, it leads to more wars against indigenous people, which we've already brought up a couple of times, but internally is then to penalize African slaves more so. Like, again, that's, this is important, but I, I'm going to let you keep going and we'll talk about why this is key at, probably at the end in the conclusion here. All right. Now we get to a very key point in this episode and in the history of this country. This is the first time in law in the colonies that the term white is used to refer to a group of people. So pay attention here. This is in 1691. This is in Act 16 of the Laws of Virginia in the Assembly of 1691. So I'm going to read this. Like I said, first time white makes an appearance. Quote, And for prevention of that abominable mixture and spurious issue which hereafter may increase in this dominion as well as by Negroes, Mulattoes, and Indians intermarrying with English or other white women, as by their unlawful accompanying with one another, be it enacted by the authority aforesaid, and it is hereby enacted that for the time to come, whatsoever English or other white man or woman, being free, shall intermarry with a Negro, Mulatto, or Indian man or woman, Bond or free shall within three months after such marriage be banished and removed from this dominion forever, and that the justices of each respective county within this dominion make it their particular care that this act be put in effective execution. So any white person marrying a, quote, Negro, mulatto, or Indian man or woman is banished forever. That's the first time that white is used in the law of this country to refer to a group of people. What do you think about that? We're gross. We're gross people. Like that. That's that's it. That's what I got for you. Hundred percent. Okay. And there's more. And this is it, it. Gets worse. Same act. And it be further enacted by the authority aforesaid, and it is hereby enacted that if any English woman, being free, shall have a bastard child by any Negro or mulatto, she pay the sum of fifteen pounds sterling silver within one month after such bastard child be born, to the church wardens of the parish where she shall be delivered of such child. And in default of such payment, she shall be taken into the possession of the said church wardens and disposed of for five years. That's put into servitude. And the said fine of 15 pounds or whatever the woman shall be disposed of for shall be paid one third part to their majesties for and towards the support of the government and the contingent charges thereof. And one other third part to the use of the parish where the offense is committed and the other third part to the informer. And that such bastard child be bound out as a servant by the said church wardens until he or she attain the age of 30 years. And in case such English woman that shall have such a bastard child be a servant, she shall be sold by the said church wardens after her time is expired that she ought by law to serve her master for five years. And the money she shall be sold for divided as is before appointed and the child to serve aforesaid. So let's just sum that up real quick. Any free white woman having a child with a black mixed or indigenous man must pay 15 pounds sterling silver to the local church. If she doesn't pay, the church will sell her into servitude for five years. Her child, whether male or female, is to be sold into servitude for 30 years, regardless of whether she pays the fine or not. If the mother is a servant and not free, then she shall serve out her current term and then another five years, and the child is still to be sold into servitude for 30 years. What do you think about that? 
This is who we are. I mean, I mean, we've already covered it. I mean, we're three episodes in and we see like at this point, like, I mean, we look around and we're like, why is there, you know, whatever, still current day misogyny? Why is there still current day racism? Why is this nation constantly still at war in all different parts of the globe at this point? Well, like, I mean, it's from the fact, this is, this is, this is who it is. This is who we are, right? This is, we're founded on, of course, war, ethnic cleansing, misogyny, racism, forced servitude, labor exploitation, right? Can a tiger really change its stripes like that? I mean, it's this is just more exemplification. I thought of two points when I first read this law. The first is to think about the culture of snitching that must have took place in the colonies at this time, because every single one of these laws, half of the fine that is paid, whether it's the minister not reading the law or the woman having a bastard child, that fine part of it goes to whoever informed on what was going on. So that's yep. just the first thing I have, which is ridiculous. The second thing is, so many times in the classroom or elsewhere I hear, like, we talk about religion was, like, used as a justification for slavery and all of this stuff. But most people let the church itself off the hook. But when you read this law and all many of the other laws in Virginia at the time, the church was the one that was actually facilitating the practice of slavery. The church here is the one that sells the child into servitude for 30 years, and the church gets the money for that selling of a child they're ch selling children into servitude i don't know how much clearer we can make it. we're willing to overlook that right like again in a nation that posits itself of a, you know, a christian nation and and loves that part of its founding origins and and it ties to all the themes that i just got done commenting on like that's part of it like great work great work <laughs> right like i mean yeah i mean what would jesus do it's not sell children just so yeah, we're all clear that's yeah, not what jesus don't, would don't do i think so yeah um, I didn't actually write it down here, the whole act, but there's later on there was an act because what started happening is when women would have these children, um, sometimes instead of just having them go into servitude for 30 years, they would actually kill them. And so there's an act actually in the law that almost brought me to tears reading that if you had a child and someone knew that you had a child and that child somehow died, even if it was stillborn, it was up to you within a month to prove to the local church that the child was stillborn and that you did not kill them, because if you could not prove it, you were put to death. I mean, think about that. How fucking gross is that? It's ridiculous. Yeah. Okay. Next. That act, by the way, continuing the same act. Quote, and for as much as great inconveniences may happen to this country, happen to this country by the setting of Negroes and mulattoes free, by their either entertaining Negro slaves from their master's service or receiving stolen goods or being thrown, uh, sorry, being grown old, bringing a charge upon the country for prevention thereof being enacted that no Negro or mulatto be after the end of this present session of the assembly set free by any person or persons whatsoever, unless such person or persons by their heirs, executors, or administrators pay for the transportation of such Negro or Negroes out of the country within six months after such setting them free. And it goes on. But you get the idea. So basically what they're saying is since free blacks might help their friends escape or steal things or grow old and have to be supported by the community, no slave could be set free ever unless the person setting them free, that is their master, could also pay to transport them out of the country. If this doesn't happen, then the owner must pay a fine of 10 pounds sterling silver to the church and the church would use that money to pay to send the newly free slave out of the country. What do you think about that? I also think it's interesting that they actually use the word country here. I read it like four times because I'm like, we aren't a country yet, but they specifically use that term, which I thought was interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, 
I mean, we would obviously nation state country like those yeah. are two different things and the terminal political terminology i guess doesn't really matter but yeah i mean that's the idea there is i mean this is control like this is just this is exerting this is bringing the hammer down this is exerting control and not only is it exerting control over over servitude over women over people uh that are of course different races and different classes this is also a certain appeal a certain appeal to a specific demographic even if you are a poor white and male will still be identifiers that give you more basically more legal rights right here and this isn't just talking about like suffrage and the right to vote this is like rights to life just from these certain statuses that are being again uh basically uplifted over others i can't think so of a better, think I can't about, think of it's like a stronger term I, yeah. let's just pretend like it's there's a good-hearted slave owner yeah. somehow and he has a mixture of white and black servants and slaves and he just has a change of heart and whatever, decides he wants to set them all free. He's free to do that with all of his white servants uh, immediately. They can be set free. If he wants to do it with any one of any African descent, he has to pay the church 10 pounds sterling for each of those that he would like to set free. I mean, just think about that for a second. Completely ridiculous. And then with that 10 pounds, the free, new, newly freed white servant is going to go try and claim their land on the frontier. The newly freed... Uh, servant or slave of African descent is immediately going to be shipped out of the country. Just think about that. Such a double standard, and just like Jared said, such a way to create this delineation uh, between these two groups of people. Um, okay, fast forwarding now uh, to 1705. This is when we really see uh, things pick up. This is when we get uh, what's now referred to as the slave code. So in the 1705 assembly, many chapters here are, uh, exist to create more very strict legal, um, requirements for justifying slavery and what happens. So I just have a few excerpts here from the various chapters. So this is chapter 23. It's titled, An Act Declaring the Negro, Negro Mulatto, and Indian Slaves Within, Within This Dominion to Be Real Estate. Literally, that's the title of the chapter of the law of the colony of Virginia. I'm going to read it one more time. An act declaring the Negro, Mulatto, and Indian slaves within this dominion to be real estate. The title pretty much explains it all. Um, it establishes slaves as property. I mean, straight up, there's no way around it. 1705, chapter 23, that's it. Though, and this is very interesting, it takes time to point out that owning a slave, even though their property, does not give the owner the right to vote, as other property would. So if you own land, you would have a right to vote if you were uh, free and white, let's say. But they say, if you don't have land and you just own slaves somehow, that doesn't actually give you the right to vote. Why would they do this? I mean, they're, they're limiting the opportunities of, yeah, I mean, it's really, it's limitation of opportunity, right? That, this is how you create, well, political hegemony. This is how you create political hegemony. Mm -hmm. And, and of course, political hegemony is founded on ideological hegemony, which we talked about already. Some of that can be found in legislation. And then, of course, attached stories will be and we'll get to those like in future episodes stories will be attached to socialize of course young white uh male or young black or young uh female whatever whatever demographic you fit into the stories will merely reinforce your plight in the world right whatever it is also think about the demographics that are happening as we continue on in time right more and more white indentured servants are becoming free they uh, may or may not have land but they might own slaves and if they own slaves, that doesn't give them the right to vote unless they own a certain amount of property. Also keep in mind here 
the plight of the servants that would have been freed that were of African descent. So we still have a class of people that are black, that are free, that might own property. However, this also removes their right to vote, which is key, because up they still have the right to vote. We're going to handle that in a few more years. But the free African men that are property owners still have the right to vote. However, not if they only own slaves, because they could still own slaves. We'll also address that coming up. So that's chapter 23. Chapter 48, section 6, forbids the marriage of any free person to any servant or servants uh, without the permission of the owner. Also, servants could not marry each other. So now you must have the permission of the owner to marry uh, a servant or for servants to marry each other. Any minister that performs a marriage without the permission of the owner uh, is to be fined 10,000 pounds of tobacco, uh, and any servant marrying without permission is to serve an additional year if they're already not enslaved for life. Now, I don't know what 10,000 pounds of tobacco translates to, but I have to imagine that no minister had that uh, amount. Uh, so you can imagine uh, how much of a taboo this was and how much it obviously never happened. Chapter 49. This is the title. An Act Concerning Servants and Slaves. Section 5. All servants who are brought to this country by sea or land who are not Christians in their native country shall be accounted and be slaves, and as such be here bought and sold. Now we have very, very strict rules and laws for what happens to people when they come to the colony. If they were not Christian in their native country, they are now slaves. And that's it. There's no more... It doesn't matter where they're coming from or what they look like. It's that none of these things matter anymore. If they were not of the Christian faith in their native country, they are now slaves to be bought and sold. That's interesting because one of the things that they, one of the, like I said, one of the processes is is conversion and right conversion of uh, of slaves and again indigenous people sometimes when they're forced into servitude. One of the main things that you can do is convert, right? They created these things called praying towns for indigenous people, and then of course on every plantation we already know like one of the first things that's constructed is a, is is a, is, a, is a, at least a small little Baptist church, um, or right next to the plantation, right? Like that's part of the process. But you, you even if you convert, you're still not qualifying. Legally. That's ridiculous. Yep. Yeah. Chapter uh, 49, section 7. No master or owner shall at any time whip a Christian white servant naked without an order from the justice of the peace. And if any notwithstanding this act shall presume to whip a Christian white servant naked without such order, the person so offending shall forfeit and pay for the same 40 shillings sterling to the party injured. Just another example of now creating this line, this very, very now legally uh, codified line between a white servant and a servant of any other uh, race. So you are absolutely not allowed to whip a Christian white servant uh, without their clothing unless you have an order of the justice of the peace. And if you do, you must pay the person that you whipped 40 uh, shillings sterling, which you can imagine never happened. So just further legally creating this. Uh, in that act, there's no mention of black servants or slaves uh, very clearly. So you are free to uh, treat them however you saw fit. Chapter 49, section 20. Forbid any minister from marrying any white man or woman to any black or mixed woman or man, regardless of status. So it doesn't matter if you were free or a servant or a slave. Any minister was forbidden from marrying any white man or woman to any black mixed uh, or mixed woman or man. So there's that. Chapter 49, section 23, establishes the right of anyone to capture runaway slaves. 
Prior to this, it was typically only uh, posses rounded up by the sheriff for a purpose specifically of going out and capturing slaves or the owners had to do it themselves. And I thought this was interesting and just gross. It actually lays out how much you get rewarded for returning the slave. So if the slave was 10 miles or more from their owner's land, the reward was 200 pounds of tobacco. If they were between 5 miles and 10 miles, it was 100 pounds. If it was under 5 miles, for some reason that is omitted from the law. So I don't know what they were thinking there. This is key, though, that this happens in 1705 because slave patrols were started in South Carolina in 1704. So it just took a year for Virginia to catch on, though we're going to talk about slave patrols uh, much more in depth in a second. So this is the beginning of now anyone has a right to go out and capture runaway slaves and you get uh, rewarded uh, accordingly for doing so. The English elite at this point are facing more and more threats to their status, mainly their elite status, because more and more white indigent servants are becoming free, uh, owning property and gaining certain levels of status. However, the problem for the elite is that the newly freed white servants that are now free still identify with the labor class. They still identify with the servants that are both white and black, uh, whether that's indentured or enslaved, and the other free white and black classes of society. They view themselves as part of the labor class, not as part of a white or elite or European or Christian class. They still identify as labor. Essentially, there's still two classes at this time in the Virginia colony. There's the elite and there is labor. Uh, that's pretty much it. Everyone that is not elite, regardless of their status or sin skin color, everyone who didn't own a large plantation or other operations still viewed themselves as labor. The elite now, this creates an issue for them because they are trying to figure out a way to further divide the labor class and to create a class that would serve as a buffer between them and the servant and slave class. Because there's only two classes, the elite and the labor, the elite are now motivated to create a third class that can be sort of the middle buffer between the slaves and the elite. In fact, they need to create a class, to use Jared's terminology of the social hierarchy, which we'll link to that video uh, in the show notes of this, they need an enforcing class. That's exactly what they need. And so they begin to model uh, a few laws to specifically create this class of people and to further fragment the labor class. So the first one is to create further division, division among the labor class. This is now based purely on race. Race In 1723, uh, free blacks are stripped of their right to vote. This is chapter 6, article 23 of the 1723 uh, Virginia uh, law. No free Negro, mulatto, or Indian whatsoever shall have any vote at the election of Burgesses or any other election whatsoever. So now, even if you are free, even if you are land-owning, it doesn't matter if you're Negro, mulatto, or Indian, you cannot vote in any election, whether it's the House of Burgesses, uh, the county level, any other election whatsoever. Now, we're going to pause here because I have a primary source that talks specifically about this law that's super interesting because many uh, historians that are studying this era have all kinds of justifications for the behaviors of the elite that were creating the laws they say, well, it wasn't so much racism as it was. They were just looking out for economic interests and they weren't really racists or it was due to religious reasons, blah, 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 blah. But here's a primary source and a response. Would those historians all be like a certain demographic maybe? Probably. I'm yeah. assuming they're mostly white male that are somewhat elite. And right, yeah. Maybe a little certain... bit of rationalization yeah. there. It's not really this thing. It just happens to – okay. 
Weird. Okay, so at the time, British attorney by the name of Richard West was the attorney general, and he was in charge of reporting to the crown, essentially, of whether or not the laws that were proposed by the colonies, whether they should actually be accepted based on their alignment with the laws of England. So as the assembly from Virginia is sending these laws across the ocean, uh, this attorney is in charge of reading them all and looking at their legal credibility and how much they align with the laws of England at the time. This is what he has to say about Article 23, Chapter 6, where they're removing the right to vote. I just want to read this because, like, we're like, well, everyone at the time thought this. Absolutely nonsense, because Attorney Richard West has a huge problem with this proposed law. This is what he says. I cannot see why one freeman should be used worse than the other, merely upon account of his complexion. To vote at elections of officers, either for a county or parish, etc., is incident to every free man who is possessed of a certain proportion of property, and therefore, when several Negroes have merited their freedom and obtained it, and by their industry have acquired the proportion of property, so that the above-mentioned incidental rights of liberty are actually vested in them, for my own part I am persuaded this cannot be just. By a general law, without any allegation of crime or other demerit whatsoever, to strip all free persons of a black complexion, some of whom may perhaps be of considerable substance, from those rights which are so justly valuable to every free man. He straight up uses the term complexion and says, I fail to see how, just purely based on skin color, it's legally justified for you to strip the right to vote from these people. Straight up. Calls them out on it. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I hear oftentimes, whether that's in, like, whatever, out in civil society or if, if it's in the classroom is, is, yeah, we just let people in the past get away with their nonsense because that's just the way it was. Everybody was like that at the time. Everybody was racist or whatever. The jury, I don't, I don't even want to use that example. Never mind. Like, everybody was this way. Like, women just didn't have rights and that's just the way it was and we should just all have to, like, that's just, people just had to deal with it then. No. 100% no. What we have done is subjugate the knowledge, like Nick just read from, of people that at the time were calling those in power out on their bullshit and, again, being ignored. And the fact that we choose to subjugate this knowledge, uh, try and erase these primary sources from existence, don't bring them up in K-12 curriculums or in Hollywood films or anything along those lines, is us basically saying, ah, these guys in our past may have done some bad things, but we won't talk too much about it, and the ends justify the means anyway. No. 100% no. Like, this... You gotta call a spade a spade. And right at that moment in time, there were people willing to say, again, before it was even cool, before there was an abolitionist, abolitionist movement in the 1720s here, hey, racism should not be a thing. Right? Right there. So the fact that people heard this argument, probably approached it both morally and ethically, and chose to continue with their practices shows the moral and ethical bankruptcy of the foundation of the country. I actually have the response here, so this is, it gets better. So he delivers his report in England in 1724, but it goes completely unanswered until it gets unearthed again 11 years later, and they actually ask for a response to West's report 11 years later. The governor at the time, uh, 11 years later, is uh, William Gooch. And this is what he says. He says, the purpose of the law was to fix a perpetual brand upon free Negroes and mulattoes. Further, he says, to make the free Negroes sensible that a distinction ought to be made between their offspring and the descendants of an Englishman. There is no mincing words. This is white supremacy. And that's exactly what he is offered after. 
So the English attorney says, well, this is legally unjustified. Why are you doing this? And he specifically responds with, because we want to make sure that blacks don't view themselves the same as whites. It's exactly what he's saying. Not unlike, I mean, I'm reminded in probably a future episode, I don't know how many episodes far down the line, when like Pershing, the World War I general, was like admonishing the French during World War I for treating their black troops so well. Like they they should not expect such type of treatment when they make it back uh, to the Jim Crow South. I mean, there's again, it's a long, rich history here. I mean, this, so here we see the, it's not the beginnings, but we just see the further codification of white supremacy in the colonies. Uh, and they have manufactured this difference between the white servants and white freemen and the black servants and slaves and the black freemen. And so they've manufactured this idea of race and they then further implement it and make it more divisive uh, using law. They create very specific and intentional laws to divide the labor class based on race rather than their station in life or their economic status. Uh, the elite could adequately stave off another rebellion, at least one where blacks and whites took up arms together against them if they created this division. Then second, they need to create an enforcing class. So they do that in 1727. 1727 is when the colony of Virginia codifies its slave patrols. And I have the partial uh, act here that I'm going to read. It's chapter 20. Uh, actually, I guess I don't have the chapter here. I just have sections 17 and 18. So this is the full thing. It shall be made lawful to and for, for the county lieutenant or other commanding officer of the militia in any county within this dominion, and he or they are hereby empowered from time to time as there shall be occasion to appoint and direct such and so many of the militia of their re respective counties to be drawn out and patrol in such places as such commanding officer shall think fit to direct and from time to time to cause to be relieved by other parties for dispersing all unusual concourse of Negroes or other slaves and for preventing any dangerous combinations which may be made amongst them uh, such at such meetings. Which said parties so went out to patrol, as I aforesaid, shall have full power and authority to take up any slaves which they shall find convened together. And if any parties of the militia be employed in this service for above the space of two days at any one time, such militia shall be paid for all the time they shall be so employed, according to the rates herein before mentioned. And it's interesting because in uh, the page just before this, they have all of the rates of all of the militiamen and what you get paid based on your level of service. So here they lay out and legally establish slave patrols that any commanding officer of the militia at any time can put together a patrol of the militia to go out and essentially uh, round up the black slaves. Um, so now this is crucial for the history of our country because this is where non-elite whites become the policing force of the black slaves. They're the enforcers of the elite ideology and the economic status of the elite plantation owners and other European elite. These are working class laboring whites that have now been uh, emboldened with this position in society. By the way, if you know anything about the history of police forces uh, in our country, this is it. It starts uh, in this era doing this. The police force starts with slave patrols. And we obviously see this heritage continuing to reverberate through our society to this day. So what do you think about that? I, I don't have any thoughts. I think you just nailed it right there. I mean, like you just said, it's, this heritage reverberates throughout our country to this day, where you get one uh, group that is exploited but is not aware of their exploitation because they get to exert exploitation on others, right? Like, And we see this in, in basically just about every policing force uh, uh, around the country to this point, like which is is is... is 
is interesting, but we'll we'll talk more about about five zero in future episodes. Let's just recap here what has just happened in just the course of a few years. The wealthy European elite have created a divide in the labor class. They've fragmented using it this manufactured white identity that they have legally and socially created over the uh, previous decades. Then in 1727, they legally codify... Uh, the enforcing class and allowing the uh, laboring whites to become the enforcers and they give them, they empower them to do so. So like you just said, it now makes them, they're exploiting someone else so they don't fully realize their exploitation or their class uh, in the level of stratification that's going on now. Right. They had a, a cute little carrot dangled in front of them. And then, of course, they rationalize it through whatever they are fulfilling, like law, which, again, our ultimate, like, obsession with law says a lot about our problematic way of looking at things in our society. But, yeah, like, that's that's how we rationalize it, to serve and to protect or justice and liberty or whatever, whatever stupid catchwords we make up to make, basically, again, enforcement, exploitation, and then subjugation feel good to ourselves. Like, we we will rationalize the hell out of this. I must stress, though, that this invention of whiteness only applied to the labor class individuals that had light complexion. If you were a plantation owner or otherwise elite, you did not consider yourself to be white. You still were very proud of your European Christian ancestry. Nowhere would you have considered yourself white. Whiteness was for the workers who had light skin complexion to delineate them from the black servants, slaves, and free men. And so they create this legal system to essentially create now three classes instead of the previous two. Now we have the elite European Christians. Then we have whites, and they were not elite. They might be Christian or they might not. Then we had the servants and slaves, who were mostly black at this point. The white indentured servitude by now has almost played itself out completely. And when Jared talks about the transatlantic slave trade, we'll talk about that taking over. So just keep in mind that the Europeans were not white. They did not consider themselves to be white. White was something that uh, was something different. So it's important to understand that at this point in history, whiteness has a negative definition. It was something that you were not. You were not elite European, nor were you black whether you were free or a slave, you were white, which is something different than those other two things. But you did share something with the elite Europeans. You shared a sense of, quote-unquote, freedom, whether that was manufactured or, or invented or not. But you were not a servant and you were not a slave. So you identified your interests with that of the elite and you stopped identifying your interests with that of the blacks, slave free, and servants. And that is a key turning point in the way that this goes down. Now, keep in mind, think back to Bacon's Rebellion. All of this is an effort by the elite to ensure that there never is a rebellion with blacks and whites joining together against their common enemy. Now, very clearly, this division that was manufactured during this era is still uh, has ramifications throughout the United States of America uh, to this day. But this is the invention of the white race in the United States through legal policies. And this is the origins of racial divide 
uh, even to this day. And then after, we know, we'll get to this in the podcast, but even after the abolition of slavery, this divide is still preserved using all kinds of other things like Jim Crow laws, segregation, mass incarceration, uh, voting disenfranchisement, which happens still to this day, redlining, on and on and on. We'll have episodes probably about all of those things. Uh, but it's important for us to understand that in the United States of America, race is a social construct that was purely created by the elite so that they could ensure their place at the top of social hierarchy, and it served purely to create fragmentation among the labor class. Thoughts? I don't have thoughts. I think you actually nailed it pretty good. We will, when we dig more into slavery, and I don't think it's the next episode. We've got other things to do before we get into the transatlantic slave trade. we got to talk about Plymouth and stuff first. But regardless, um, in future episodes, we're going to talk. I mean, Nick just gave us like the perfect rundown of legalese used to manufacture like racial divide we are also then in like i said a future episode is going to talk about like narrative like how was this reinforced uh how did we use quote-unquote science or religion uh or or even popular culture to further this divide those are the things that we're going to be looking at because these are the things that socialize us into our quote-unquote rationalized behavior uh again for the policing force at the time in the 1720s that would go and round up these runaway Slaves, again, they are feeling um, not only justified in what they do because of what they've been conditioned to believe in, but it also is then being reinforced through some sort of material reward. So it's like it's it it, it it's almost reflexive, um, where the values are then reinforced by the material benefit or the uh, uh, the reward. So, and we're going to see this again. It's going to be perpetual throughout U.S. history from this point forward. So I'm glad we got this this out of the way. All right, that does it for this episode of Myth is America on the Revolution and Ideology podcast. Uh, you can connect with us online at revolutionandideology.com. We're on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. Make sure you subscribe to us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's iTunes or elsewhere. You can also find our YouTube channel. All of our episodes are uploaded uh, there. So until next time, I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later.